today we have a standalone sermon, but in some ways this really is a continuation of the series Christine wrapped up for us last week on love and hate. The topic we're dealing with comes from a question someone in our congregation asked uh, when I was collecting uh, sermon ideas in the summer, which is, how can we be friends with God? It seems simple on its surface, but the more you think about it, the more complicated it gets. We are human beings. We know how to be friends with other people. We spend time with them. We talk with them. We have them over for dinner. But how do you do that with God? Especially as we consider on Transfiguration Sunday, uh, the, the literal transfiguration of Jesus, he becomes like a being that seems untouchable, unknowable. Even if we wanted to, we can't see, touch, or feel, or talk with God. We can't have God over for coffee. What does it really mean to be friends with God? We're going to start with a couple of passages this morning. The first is Jesus' command to his disciples just before he is arrested and crucified. Let's hear now from John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17. Phil? Thank you, Pastor Tony. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer, because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, I chose you, and I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask him in my name. I am giving you these commands so that you may love one another. Now, if the world hates you, be aware that it hated me before it hated you. If you belong to the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, servants, are not greater than their master. If they persecuted me, they will certainly persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. It was to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. So when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who comes from the father, he will testify on my behalf. You also are to testify because you have been with me from the beginning. And from James chapter 4, verse 4, Adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I invite you to join me in our prayer of preparation. May the words of my mouth in the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. 
It would be amazing to live with no fear, wouldn't it? Imagine for a moment, nothing at all could make you scared. You could see anything and it wouldn't even make you flinch. You could go into any situation with complete confidence. No one could make you run away. No fear sounds pretty liberating, doesn't it? There's actually a woman who has no fear whatsoever. She went to a hospital because she was having unexplained blackouts. At first, they couldn't figure it out because everything seemed perfectly normal. At one point, though, they noticed their patient didn't seem to have any fear. She didn't feel fear. So the scientists did experiments on her. They showed her scary movies. Nothing. They took her to a haunted house. She was just curious about it all. Spiders and snakes all couldn't provoke her. After a brain scan, they discovered one small part of her brain, the amygdala, was completely gone. That meant she literally could not feel fear. Her children recalled an incident from when they were young. They saw a snake that was so big, it stretched from one end of the yard all the way across the street. Their mom just walked over, picked it up, and dragged it across the street so it was no longer in their yard. She had no fear. At another point, she was held against her will with a knife to her throat. Her response? She threatened the man right back until he let her go. It's incredible to think, but the things that would typically traumatize the rest of us are hardly even memorable for this woman. Usually when we think of fear, we think of animals that seem bizarre or deadly. Maybe we imagine people harming us without any good reason. But fear is a very natural part of being human. We fear the unknown. We fear what we cannot control. So maybe it shouldn't surprise us when ordinary people describe God as something they fear. A joke I've heard too many times to count is that someone tells me they won't come to church because lightning will strike the building if they walk in. That is a joke born out of fear. It assumes that God is angry with someone for not coming to church, and that if they go to the place where God is at church, God would punish them. I'm pretty sure two out of two of those assumptions are wrong, uh, and yet people fear God. You even see it in the scriptures. Think of all the times God or an angel speaks to someone. What's the first thing they say? Fear not. When Joseph or Moses speak to the people on behalf of God, they say it too. Fear not. When the people of God are about to go into battle, fear not. Over and over, scripture says, don't be afraid, yet fear is everywhere. Why is that? turns out our brains are built to constantly assess the risk of everything around us. Years ago, that was a good thing. You wanted to know if that snapping branch was a creature about to attack you or that person coming toward you with a stick or a stone meant to harm you. But today, our environment is constantly sending us signals that we interpret as danger. Cars rushing by. People all around us, even TV pings our brain, our amygdala, telling us danger, danger, danger. So instead of being fearless, we are constantly 
fearful. We are told there is danger, even if it's the furthest thing from the truth. I remember when I was a little boy, I was in church with my mother. At the end of the sermon, the preacher asked people if they wanted to go to heaven, and if they did, they should come forward to the front of the church and pray with the pastor. It was a good old-fashioned altar call. Maybe this goes without saying, but when you're little and someone asks you if you want to go to heaven, you say yes. (laughs) When I asked my mom about going up and praying, she was happy about it. Her baby boy was going to find Jesus and get saved. A few weeks later, the same thing happened. The pastor asked if anyone wanted to go to heaven. I asked my mom about it. She said yes, and I went forward to get saved a second time. My mom has since shared with me that she thought, well, it can't hurt to go forward and to pray again so she let me go up then it happened again and again i got saved five times in one month now you might be wondering if i was simply the worst child in the world and really needed to be cleaned of my sin over and over again it's possible but i think what was really at at the root of praying over and over again was actually fear i was scared that I might not go to heaven. I was worried God might not accept me. I was taught at a very young age that in order to be friends with God, you have to do what makes God happy. That's how you become friends with God. You don't, uh, if you don't, well, there are very real consequences for not being on God's side. I've since learned, though, that the truth is far more complicated. Fear The thing that drove me to God in the first place is the very thing that separates us from God. Not only that, fear separates us from one another, the very same people God calls us to love. Our brain tells us over and over danger, where God tells us over and over, love them, love the people. When we look at This story from John 15, when Jesus is with the disciples just a short time before he's crucified, he is explaining to them both how to be friends with God and how the world will respond. Just before the section we read today, Jesus has washed the disciples' feet and told them about the coming Holy Spirit. And then he offers them an analogy of what it is like to be connected to God. We are like grapes. Jesus is the vine. And God is the vine grower. As long as we live in connection with Jesus and God is tending the grapevine, we grapes will grow. Then we get to the part we read today. How do the grapes stay connected to Jesus so they can grow? He says, follow my commandments and love one another. We are friends with Jesus because he has revealed the whole plan to us. There are no longer secrets between us and him. The plan is just follow the commandments and love each other. Simple and straightforward. Now, both of those things are hard to do. No one follows the commandments perfectly, but we know we are given grace by God. God forgives us when we are sorry and work to change our lives. That's good enough. That's all he requires there. But when it comes to loving others, there's actually this big debate about what that actually means. Is Jesus saying we need to love the other disciples? Is our love reserved for people that are following Jesus? 
or do we love everyone? The Christians, the atheists, the ignorant, even the devil worshipers? Is this love for the Christian community or for everybody? By the end of the chapter, Jesus is saying that the world is going to hate you. The world persecutes Jesus, so it's going to persecute you too. It almost sounds like an us versus them or us versus the world mentality. Love the Christians. Hate the world that is sure to hate you for loving me. Then you look at a verse like James 4, and it seems certain. Adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or hostility with God? A friend of the world becomes an enemy with God. Well, there you have it. If you are friends with the world, you are an enemy with God. That seems pretty clear then, that we don't love those people out there. We just work on doing a better job of loving each other. End of story. Or is it? It it would be nice, wouldn't it, if we just had to love the people that love us? So Christians who are commanded by God to be loving and kind to us are the only ones that we have to love? That is so easy. Except that that is really unlikely to be what Jesus means. James, who wrote, a friend of the world is an enemy of God, is very likely the brother of Jesus. He was not a believer in Jesus while his brother, Jesus, was alive. But after Jesus' death and resurrection, James becomes a key leader of the Christian church. He's known as one of the, the three pillars, the three most important people of the faith at that time. And here he interprets Jesus' teachings for the church. He is writing years after Jesus' death and resurrection, and some of Jesus' followers are arguing over what it meant to follow Jesus. Some of them are getting angry. They are so mad about the poverty and oppression they experience that some are starting to talk in the streets about how it is time to overthrow the rich people. The Roman Empire and the rich people at the top of the pyramid are oppressing the poor. So they are asking, should these Christian followers revolt? Should they fight the system by killing people and redistributing wealth? James's answer, of course, is no. That's why James calls them adulterers. They are unfaithful to God when they try and bring justice through murder and Robin Hood-style socialism, stealing from the rich and giving it to the poor. That is the wrong way to make things right. James makes it clear that there are only two options for these oppressed people. You either follow God's path, or you follow the world's path. The world values wealth and power. God values people and acts of love for one another. If you're going to pursue wealth and power, then you are no friend of God. It's not that the world and the people in it are necessarily bad. It's that the values they hold are not kingdom values. If you're going to be God's friend, you've got to take on God's value. (coughs) Don't reject the people. God loves these people. We reject the thinking and the values of the world. Let's make this concrete for a moment here. Let's look at a few situations and name 
what are God's values and what are the values of the world. Many of you know I go to a coffee shop to write my sermons, and I couldn't believe this was happening as I was writing this week. Uh, I had my beverage at uh, Toasties in Westwood, right across the street from Starbucks. Uh, Emily convinced me to try out Toasties this week. And a a woman pulled up to the side of Starbucks. Uh, That spot is a no parking or standing zone. And as she was getting out of her car, the Westwood Parking Authority came through. Comes up in his little car and tells her she has to park in the lot down the street And you can see by her arms and the way that she's talking, she's telling him, I just got to go in the store for two seconds to pick up my drink. But the parking authority will not bend. And she takes off in anger. Two minutes later, the exact same thing happens. Another woman pulls up in the same spot as the last person. And the parking authority guy walks over, telling her the same thing as the last person. She's polite. And she says, okay. She sits in her car and waits for him to go around the corner. And then she quickly runs into the store, gets her coffee, and takes off. Valuing your coffee to the exclusion of the laws of the Westwood Parking Authority, that is a worldly value, not a godly one. Even if you believe, like I do, that the parking rules in Westwood are not godly in the first place. (laughs) How about another situation, your children's education? Valuing your child's education is good. That's excellent. And I think God commends us for making it a priority. But when we value our child's education to the exclusion and detriment of others, that is a worldly value. Do you see that other people's children matter like yours matter to you? One last one, your home. You love it. It's yours, and you pour time and energy into making it worth even more than when you got it. All good things. But when we value its worth so much, we won't let others have a home like we do. We won't even let them build homes or apartments so they have a place to live. That's a worldly value. Not in my backyard has no place in the kingdom of God. Don't let the world's values be in charge of your life. Don't let fear of less money or a lower quality education or the inconvenience of walking a little farther for your cold coffee get in the way. Choose God. And know that choosing God and God's values means you are choosing the people that God loves. It's not just the people here in this church. It's not just your family or the people you like. It's everybody. It's every single person. Value what God values. Love as God loves. Don't get stuck thinking your prayer of salvation is enough. Don't think that because you think you are God's friend that that's enough. You've got to live a life based on what God values. Ajima Olu Uh, wrote the book the United Methodist Women's Book Club is going to talk about today. Some of you have read it. I've read portions of it and found out it has far saltier language than I expected. Uh, But I also found a beautiful story of the author, who is black, talking to her white mother. Despite Ajima writing about race for a living, her mother doesn't really understand her daughter's blackness. Race 
can be a scary topic for many people, even for this mother who raised three black daughters. And as the two are talking on the phone about an incident involving this white mother and a black co-worker, Ijima is compelled to help her mother realize how little she knows about race, helping her understand what it's like to live with daily, unwarranted hatred of others for you for no good reason. Now, today, her mom understands a little more and knows her goal is to encourage white people to do better because God has no favorites. God loves all of us. I think William Blake said it best when he said, I sought my soul, but my soul I could not see. I sought my God, but my God eluded me. I sought my brother, and I found all three. When we do better for others, that is when we find our souls, and strangely enough, that is when we truly find God. That's what we see in Jesus, too. He laid his life down for his friends. He died so that they and us and everyone could become friends with God. We choose to live for Jesus, and in doing so, we discover more and more about how to treat others right, how to truly love others, and how to love as God loves. Amen.